Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is artist Paul Vanus. He's visiting Utah State University as a part of the Art System Project, or Artsy STEM Project. And uh, today we're going to discuss race and DNA, the CSI effect, DNA fingerprints, the Human Genome Project, and related to topics. Uh, the Art Artsy STEM Project is uh, a uh, collaboration. It's uh, being headed by uh, USU Assistant Professor of Art Mark Lee and Nancy Huntley, Director of the USU Ecology Center. It's a uh, a year-long uh, project which uh, will feature uh, artists and residents, uh, visiting scholar lecture series, arts and science workshops, and public art exhibitions. Very interesting intersection of art and science. And uh, Paul Vanus uh, is operating in a very interesting area, this intersection of art and science. Uh, his uh, projects include something called the Suspect Inversion Center, which serves as an open working laboratory where uh, visitors can witness the artists and collaborators creating master copies of historical DNA courtroom images from the 1995 O.J. Simpson murder trial live on site using the artist's own DNA. The Relative Velocity Inscription Device is a live scientific experiment using the DNA of a multiracial family of Jamaican descent and is uh, pushing back on this idea of uh, biological basis for race. Many other interesting projects. Paul Venus, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, you're also a professor of art uh, at uh, University of Buffalo yes. as well, should, yes. should mention. And uh, the website, if you'd like to go and uh, see these works, is paulvanus.com. We'll be referring to some of these, so that might be helpful if you uh, follow along at, at home. So you, uh, you're you operating in what we call emerging media forms? Yes. Yeah. What, what's that? Uh, well, it's meant to be a kind of an open uh title for uh, for how I work um, the idea is that um, you know what if artists practice were based uh, around looking at various emerging technologies that are you know uh, available to them and then suggesting you know what if these are actually used as a medium what if they were forced to communicate uh, in ways uh, that maybe the artist intended what if they are also maybe uh, allowed to be able to communicate about themselves right to somehow you know, so show something of uh, what they do that is not even maybe uh, the intent of the original makers of that technology. Mm. And you, you do something very interesting. You, uh, you use the science itself to comment on the science. Yeah, precisely. So the idea is that these things are self-reflexive, mm -hmm. right? You're working in a form that is referring them back to itself or commenting back on itself. How'd you get interested in DNA? Well, I, I mentioned at this, uh, the panel that took place here a few days ago that um, there was an amazing roundtable uh, that I was invited to in Seattle, Washington uh, in 1999. And there were six artists and six really amazing scientists uh, from the University of Washington, Seattle. We were invited to have a conversation for two days. And uh, at the end of that uh, came uh, a lot of ideas, and they eventually led to a show in 2002, which was uh, in which they commissioned uh, the first of my DNA-based pieces, and from there it was really hard to look back at anything else. Mm -hmm. Of course, DNA is so central to anything that we do these days, very central science, and <laughs> it's what we're made up of, right? So it's fascinating. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, when, when, that pro when I got into this and when that roundtable was convened, it was right around the completion of what was called the first draft of the Human Genome Project. And, you know, I mean, it, people were going, people were really excited. Uh, you know, I, I remember, I think, right, after, right at that time, I think Bill Clinton said, you know, we finally stand here, you know, uh, we have the rough, you know, the rough draft of the uh, God's blueprint, you know. <laughs> so there was some very, very optimistic and utopian and kind of grandiose uh, sentiments uh, mm. being tossed around at that time. So d did you have to learn, it, it, you're an artist who works, uses the science itself to comment on the science, so DNA, you have to learn how to work with DNA. Yeah, I mean, this was, if I have an artist background, it's, it's a background in sort of hacking and experimenting and sort of having, I guess, enough self-confidence or naivete to sort of figure that, you know, you can... You can learn how to do things. You can learn how to program computers. You can learn how to build simple robotic systems. Uh, these things are, are are within reach. And so I come out of a practice that was like that. And so, um, particularly with the with sort of a little bit of hand holding from these scientists uh, 
in Seattle that I'd met. Um, it was kind of a logical place for me to explore. Tell me about the relative velocity inscription device. This is this is about race. Yeah. So if you can imagine the moment, it's 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 the year two thousand, uh, and you open the New York Times and you see this great proclamation by a team of UNESCO scientists saying uh, there's no such thing as race. Uh, the, the, it, this was a social cultural construction. And in fact, there's no biological basis for it. Uh, it was, uh, we, the number of genes uh, shared uh, between so-called races uh, is um, greater than the number, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the difference between races was less than the DNA sort of within the DNA differences within races. And so from this really kind of quantitative measure, there, there's no such thing as race. The piece kind of looks at that statement, thinks, originally great in a way this could be the end of, of some bad times and but then i thought well you know what if what if racism could exist even if race does not right uh what if what if in a way there's the door has still been left open for the idea that race is no longer associated just with the skin uh or with the surface but there's something deep inside that can become stigmatized and so this is what i was referring to as a or others have referred to as a molecular racism. Uh, what happens when um, individual genes can be stigmatized as being warrior genes, which cause violence or, or you know, other sorts of things? Mm. This is the pessimistic view. <laughs> to Pre precisely to counteract yeah, the optimistic you know, view. Yeah, totally. And again, I, when I read that statement, I, it was it was not without optimism, but it was also with you know, uh, I guess also an artist's mind that's turning things around and imagining. Not just sort of you know taking uh, one pathway of interpretation, but also thinking, well, what if what if there's another route? You know, what mm -hmm. what's going to happen with this? And I think artists like me, like you know, sort of it's in this sort of space of openness and uncertainty that um, uh, you know we, we we actually like to work. Mm -hmm. And you, there is basis for it for a pessimistic view. Um, it's uh, you know those who are seeking to, looking for racial differences haven't necessarily needed to depend totally on, on science. I mean, they, 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 they've wanted science to sure. validate their views, but sure. it's, it's not going to be a necessary foundation. Yeah, sure. And so when I say, you know, you know, taking a pessimistic view or taking an optimistic view, I mean, in reality, after, after uh, these kind of conclusions, both things will be true to some degree, mm -hmm. right? There will be some forms of molecular racism that still can continue to um, sort of define... Uh, people as having a sort of biological basis of behavior or uh, that somehow something in their biology sort of determines their ultimate fates. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but at the same time, there's also going to be those who really can, can take that and run with it and can say, you know, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's very optimistically see uh, the degree of sameness between us rather than right. the degrees of difference. Right. Uh, so tell me how this works, relative velocity inscription device. This is, this is quite personal. You're you're using your own family <laughs> yeah. in, this, in you, this one. You're a very adept reader. Uh, whenever I've described it, I always say a family of Jamaican descent, yeah. as if I'm some kind of you know disinterested observer here. Uh, in fact, it's my own family, which uh, you know my mother was born in Jamaica, my father was born in the states. Uh, we are you know a very mixed uh, group, uh, and uh, so that project was based on one of the really the, the earliest genet uh, eugenic uh, publications in the U.S., which was called Race Crossing in Jamaica. It was a study that was d designed to look at the difference between um, pure-blooded uh, blacks, whites versus browns. And the, the study was really designed to conclude that browns were less than the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm. So that was 1929. Flash forward 75 years or 71 years. Uh, my project was then kind of almost a, a cheeky parallel to that. You know, let's test one specific family that whose members kind of range from being uh, brown to white, uh, almost like the second generation of the original project, and um, and you know, sort of test them for uh, genetic fitness. Now, the gen genetic fitness has been a trope that's been around for you know, I, guess, I suppose a hundred years. I was doing something very playful, which was to see how fit each person's genes were, I was literally racing the DNA itself in a gel that, um, an experiment that's, that's 
often referred to as genetic fingerprinting. You kind of put DNA in one's, uh, these little holes in a gelatin, you apply voltage across the gelatin, and the DNA moves at a rate inversely proportional to its size. The small things move faster than the big things. Anyway, so, so the, the, the kind of rub here is that, um, you know, uh, the speed of DNA does not determine your genetic fitness, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of a joke. It's like if you have running bodies, mm-hmm. your speed might be uh, coincide with your fitness. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, there's there's no relation. But uh, but the idea here was to kind of kind of show how um, how the very n- notion of race could be assembled from these kind of uh, diverse little parts. Mm-hmm. It, interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, constructed. <laughs> that makes sense. As- assembled, yes. Yeah. I yes. guess the viewers will have yeah. to close their eyes right. there yeah. and, and picture this kind of big, strange, you know, humming device with this um, with these little glowing blips of DNA that are moving mm-hmm. through at a rate that's so slow you can't detect mm-hmm. it with the naked mm-hmm. eye. Right. But there's a computer, uh, uh, there's a camera image from above that shows you kind of point to each one and shows its relative uh, position uh distance on the screen right. so it's kind of framed as a race mm-hmm. and so it's, it's sort of through this framing that you then sort of make meaning of the fact that these you know it's, it's a race between this family member i should say that the thing the, the gene that is raced here or the set of genes that we i raced were genes that uh co-determine skin color mm. so it's interesting almost, right so yeah. it's almost like mm-hmm. racing brownness itself against whiteness itself right. in a sense right. right this is the and in addition to being comment um, on the science, it's it's a performance, as well. As well. You can you can actually you can attend. Yes. This. Yeah. So so it's time based, and a lot of times I think artists, contemporary artists, sort of think of performance like that. We do sort of performance with a small p. You know, there's something performing, but it's not this sort of um, really really intentional performance with stage and mm-hmm. actors and training or anything. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's li- that piece was live and it was. It was somewhat interactive, and in that there were these touch screens that also kind of helped, kind of um, helped you sort of understand the terms of the experiment mm-hmm. and whatever. We are uh, talking with Paul Venus. He's an artist in the uh, emerging media uh, area, and uh, he teaches at University of Buffalo. He is in Logan for events with uh, the Artsy STEM project. It's a project at Utah State University, looking at the intersection between art and uh, and the STEM sciences. And uh, we're talking about his very interesting uh, projects. We've talked about uh, this idea of race with the relative velocity inscription device. After the break, I want to get into uh, the Suspect Inversion Center. This is an open working laboratory. The artists and collaborators create master copies of historical DNA courtroom images from the 1995 O.J. Simpson murder trial live on site using the artist's own DNA. And we'll get into talking about the Human Genome Project, DNA fingerprinting, the CSI effect as well, public's understanding of uh, DNA science, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Have you ever heard of a fruit cocktail? This is what happens when you graft various fruits onto one hardy rootstock. You get several different fruits growing on the same tree. It's also done with citrus fruits. And on Thursday's Zesty Garden, Helen Cannon reads about the process in Petals and Prose. First is a monthly conversation with USU Extension Entomologist Diane Alston. She'll give us an update on grasshoppers, coddling moths, and the greater peach tree borer. You'll also hear about Mormon tea in our Going Native segment. That's this Thursday at 10 a.m. on the Zesty Garden. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking DNA science on the program today uh, with artist Paul Vanus, who is visiting Utah State University as a part of the Artsy STEM project. And uh, we've discussed race and DNA. We're coming up, we're going to discuss the CSI effect, human genome project, uh, DNA fingerprinting, 
Paul Vanus uh, does interesting work. Uh, he uh, examines uh, the new techno sciences using those same scientific processes as a way to comment on the science. So, uh, for example, we talked about in the earlier um, segment about the relative velocity inscription device, which uh, consisted of, of some DNA being, uh, I guess, uh, well, you can explain it better than I can, uh, Paul Venus, uh, but people could actually watch this happening. Yeah, DNA was being, in technical terms, you'd say electrophoresed, or in maybe more lay terms, you'd say raced. Okay. <laughs> and so it's kind of an elaborate pun on the idea of race. You know, it's yeah. a race about race right. with the bodies erased. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, talk about this uh, fascinating uh, uh, project called the Suspect Inversion Center. So you're, you're taking off on the 1995 O.J. Simpson murder trial. This, of course, was a watershed moment, you know, the trial of the century, and uh, people just getting a handle on what is DNA. So that figured prominently at the trial. Yeah, and I should, I should mention from the get-go, it, you know, the, the trial is often seen as something that's almost uh, just, just treated comically or something. And uh, I do enter this as realizing that the, the problem with treating it comically is that um, real people died. So it's not, in a way, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have this, the, the comic dimension isn't something that I'm interested in here. I'm interested in this idea that, um, yeah, it was the moment when, uh, when uh, they say the American people learned more than they ever learned about uh, DNA imaging. They learned all this interesting vocabulary, terms like variable nucleotide tandem repeats, uh, ghost bands, uh, 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 mini satellites, all these different strange, really specific DNA terms. It was a moment when they learned uh, the most about uh, DNA on the one hand. On the other hand, it was also the, the uh, kind of a watershed moment in that the, there had never been more DNA evidence against uh, a defendant, uh, but there had also never been a defendant that had ever been sort of proven innocent. It, we'd never seen this case where prosecutorial evidence could be uh, countered. Uh, and then lastly, with, with the trial, it was the moment, or just before this was the moment that the DNA wars, as they, they were described, were said to be over. DNA, you know, the efficacy of DNA in uh, differentiating or, or showing similarities between people was no longer an issue of the courts. The courts accepted DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. And so this was, it was a watershed moment because the courts had, had accepted it, you know, uh, it didn't need to be reproven as, as being efficacy uh, every single trial. The most evidence ever was collected, but still somehow um, uh, the DNA evidence was seen as faulty and, and thrown out. So it, it, for me, it was a fascinating moment to look back at. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit about this idea of uh, DNA fingerprints. This is a term that uh, came into vogue right about that time early on. It's a misnomer, you're well, saying. It's funny. Actually, the term she was comes out in the 80s, it was uh, the inventor of the technology himself, a fellow named Alec Jeffries, Sir Alec Jeffries of England, uh, who invents it. He, it's, it's the title of his article in Nature, saying, talking about site-specific images of human DNA fingerprints. Uh, he mentions that the minute he calls it DNA fingerprints, he says, the penny dropped. Mm. You know, all of a sudden he's getting calls from Scotland Yard saying, we can use this in court. Mm. And he's perplexed because he thinks, well, if I had called this, you know, uh, uh, hybrid Southern block profiling, <laughs> nobody would have cared. Mm -hmm. But I call it DNA fingerprinting, and and all of a sudden, uh, prosecutors, Scotland Yard, are interested in the technology. So I find it fascinating because the curious thing about the term that was just kind of thrown off by the inventor uh, originally uh, – it's not from a finger, nor is it a print. So it's kind of wrong in every aspect, yet it kind of sticks and it clouds the way we also understand the, the DNA image itself. Hmm. Uh, in one way, it's, uh, you can, uh, it's a way of understanding it, immediate understanding. Yes. But yes. it's a way of immediately misunderstanding it, I, I suppose, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, because we, we can grasp this idea of you take the fingerprint and fingerprints are supposed to be unique. And in the same way, our understanding, our lay understanding is, well, DNA is unique. Yeah. And so yeah. we should be able to, in the same way, yeah. identify the, the suspect. Yeah. No, I think that's a really succinct way of understanding the, the similarity. I mean, the thing that can be a little misleading and with a lot of my work is kind of taking on is that 
human DNA is unique, right, be, be, between people unless they're identical twins. We, we have 30 billion bases of DNA, which uh, I don't think there will ever be two people born with the exact same sets right. of bases. However, when we make a DNA image, we usually look at somewhere between 9 and 15 different sites on the DNA for difference. So we're not looking at 3 billion Right, we're looking at, at, at a very small sus, uh, subset. So it's, in a way, it's different than the fingerprint because with a fingerprint, like from a finger, right, you, you make an impression uh, which is exactly what your fingerprint looks like when you look at it with the naked eye. With a DNA image, you take your DNA and you process it in a lab for you know, a long time, chopping it into pieces, uh, you know, looking at a few meaningful sites on that DNA, and that's what constitutes the, the image. Mm-hmm. So the misnomer, I guess, is it's not like what you see is what you get. Right, right. right. There's this big, complicated process in between. And what I'm showing is that there are actually thousands of different processes that can be done to make that image. Mm -hmm. And and this, I guess, desire to trust in the science, and it's sort of of a panacea, which in a way it is, Mm -hmm. uh, leads to the CSI effect. We'll talk about that. Uh, Professor, I'll, I'll ask you to put your headphones on. We have a caller. Uh-huh. Uh, Kevin in Logan uh, joins us. Glad you're, glad you're joining us. Go ahead with your question or comment. Zionists believe that uh, 3,500 years ago, God gave a title, no signature by God yet that they found, but uh, they believe that God gave title to Israel, to the so-called Jews. And uh, it, it's rather interesting in delving into this, seeing how people that thought, you know, they were Jews, they migrated to Israel, and the Israeli uh, courts have determined that people were not Jews, for instance, because they don't have the proper uh, documentation or the popular blood. I'm imagining that these Zionists do not have anything good to say about the philosophy espoused uh, by the guest, which I find very fascinating about the artificiality of race, and wondering if he has had some violent feedback, because these just, uh, usually, uh, they, they burn pretty much the whole forest down, you know, anybody that gets in their way regarding their philosophy that God gave them title to that land over there. Okay, thanks, Kevin. And by the way, um, upraxis at gmail.com is how you can join us. I'm trying to think, I, I haven't had specific uh, interactions um with that, like uh, you know, on the uh, like on a Zionist front, I mean, if if anything, the 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 things I get are, you know, sometimes the construction of race in some ways. It, you know, some people say you know it's too early to 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 throw that out, right? Um, uh, in a way, you know, um, how can you throw out this thing, which also can sometimes highlight. Uh, Racism or lack of representation itself, right? I mean, if you if if you kind of pre- if you say that race doesn't exist, and then all of a sudden it becomes harder to um, harder to know instances of racism, or it also can become harder for you know people in you know who uh, you know are in certain groups to um, to also mobilize and to find uh, find similarity and to you know find the kind of common mission in a sense and so uh, if anything I've I've run into I've run into criticisms on that front that you know is it you know do we still need this this concept of of race as a way of organizing even sometimes in positive ways uh, so that's the level of criticism I run into I've also I guess run into criticism by people who thought you know took too literally what I was doing in some of that early work thinking that I was actually trying to sort of when I was redoing eugenic a eugenic project that I was doing it, uh, you know, um, no pun, you know, w- without um, without critique. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so sometimes people will read things too literally, and um, you know, I, I, th- I think both situations are un- uh, are unfortunate because I, I kind of I, I'm really interested in keeping these questions open. I'm not into shutting down meanings. Uh, I wonder if you could. Uh, we've been talking about your suspect inversion center. What if you could describe this? Yeah, so imagine, if you, if you will, a, sort of a laboratory table that's sort of shaped in this sort of, uh, sort of a semicircle uh, in a gallery space uh, with myself and uh, my performance collaborator, Carrie Sheehan, 
sort of actively uh, extracting DNA. You know, my, I'm like swishing salt water around in my mouth, spinning it into into um, test tubes, extracting bits from that, heating it, you know, putting it into machines called PCR, running it in gels, uh, while cro- while audience members can come around and sort of ask us questions about any part of the process. Uh, they can ask us about literally the scientific stuff. They can ask us about the kind of social meanings of this case. They can ask us about some of the kind of legal proceedings and what they meant. And the idea was is that, you know, um, the idea was is that the kind of technical and the scientific and the social and the legal and the, these things kind of tangle together in these really kind of complex imbroglios and to somehow try to like separate them into like this is a scientific question, this is a social question, this is a pop culture question. That was somewhat artificial. So the idea of this lab called the Suspect Inversion Center was that this was a place where any kind of complicated question could also be kind of considered, discussed, and would be a kind of open show and tell of these different processes of uh, DNA identification. And you're using your own DNA. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you are... Uh, uh, you're recreating, creating master copies of, of those courtroom images from 1995. That's interesting. You use your own DNA to. Yeah, I call this. I call this my my sort of artistic manifesto on this mm-hmm. is that uh, it's a manifesto of radical sameness. That we're all so much alike that um, I can basically make my. I can painfully reconstruct almost any type of a DNA image using my own DNA, mm. assuming that I have enough technologies at my disposal. Right, to to look like the images from from OJ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of there's this tradition in the arts uh, called uh, creating master studies, and you know you'll sometimes see people in museums, sort of like up by a uh, Mark Rothko or uh, you know. Jackson Pollock, and they'll be trying to sort of literally recreate that painting. And by recreating it, you come to understand that artist. You come to understand the, the 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 moment that they're working in. So I was trying to do the same for the DNA fingerprint. That right. how could I really understand what was going on here unless I painfully reconstructed it? Right. Which leaves open one of the questions. It leaves open is how open to manipulation or accident or whatever. Yep. Is is that actual DNA image being processed in, say, the FBI lab? Yeah. So again, I mean, with a lot of this work, I'm also I'm I'm putting forth this idea that the DNA image is plastic, right? The DNA is a plastic medium uh, of representation, like other ones that artists might have used, right? Think about photography. Photography is one seeing as like being this this total reflection. This this almost too. Cl- Some people didn't like to be photographed because it was somehow taking their essence. You know, uh, it, it was seen as totally authoritative until artists started monkeying around with it and mm-hmm. showing you could make double exposures, or you could stretch it, you could do all these different things to it. In a way, I'm, I'm proposing that maybe DNA is a bit similar, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that DNA is also plastic. Maybe there are thousands of different ways of manipulating it. And maybe we've, you know, maybe you're kind of shutting it down too early by, by thinking of it some kind, this image as some kind of an essence of, a, a total essence of our identity. Mm-hmm. Do you, having done this, do you come away with less faith in the justice system? Do do you get that question at, at installations? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, I'm, I think I'm somebody that's always most comfortable when when there's uh, when all possibility and all meanings are not shut down. So when I hear these things, you know, that there's no that this is a hundred percent efficacy and that. that a DNA image represents one individual to the you know uh, to the exclusion of you know hundreds of billions. I do get a little bit suspicious when you hear that you know every so often in court cases there there are mistakes and you know how come these aren't calculated in as part of the part of the probabilities that we hear about when we hear about how great DNA fingerprinting is and and there's certainly some. Uh, uh, Recent events in you know with the Department of Justice that make you also want to kind of be a little bit question, questionable, questioning a little bit. Uh, uh, ballistics, right? We used to think that you know an expert could tell uh, the make of a gun of a, a bullet fired from a gun from you know anything else available. And we've since found out that all those all those court cases are now kind of trying to be reopened. Um, same with hair follicle analysis. Mm-hmm. You know that you know these things. Uh, these things often are not capable of producing absolute certainty. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is this is why I'm kind of opening up a little bit, too. I guess that's the bottom line. We, we, we shouldn't take absolute certainty. It's just 
it's it's still beyond a reasonable doubt. That's still what you have to <laughs> still what you have to have to do, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just think, every, and part of this is also that I think the more the, the more demystified these processes are, the better we can understand how how seriously you take them, right? And and if things are always mystified, if if people don't know the kind of techniques behind things, if if everything is kind of taking place uh, sort of outside the public eye, and we're just kind of left with a glitzy image and and a spokesperson saying, you know, um, <laughs> how damning the image is, uh, you know, we're kind of in a bad spot as a public. So, I mean, a lot of this work is, you know, is also trying to kind of just put out some of the basics into, into a public forum. So this, uh, we could easily fit in the CSI effect here. Yeah, this, sure. This is, this is, in a sense, uh, you know, shows like CSI, and they're proliferating all over uh, television, yep. where high-tech solves the case. Yeah. Absolute certainty. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Um, you know, this piece that we're describing now is called the Suspect Inversion Center. The uh, acronym is SIC. Mm-hmm. If you kind of think about those letters, it's also an anagram of CSI, SIC, CSI. The idea was that SIC, the Suspect Inversion Center, was a functional inversion of suspicion. So rather than rather than always sort of see the, uh, the the defendant or the individual as suspect, let's actually turn our gaze to how we how we how we do this identification, right? Let's make let's let's put that under the spotlight, and let's also invert this idea that you know these kind of these high technologies you you know you um, put some DNA in and they they tell you you know. Uh, everything imaginable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also trying to kind of, in ways, kind of slow down, you know, slow down the way that we understand uh, these processes. Mm-hmm. It also could be, you could take this, of course, that's what you want to do as an artist, is can be taken very many different ways, but uh, Suspect Inversion Center, like the Relative Velocity Inscription Device, you're using your own DNA here. I guess that's the easiest way, rather than ask someone else for their, for their DNA. The artist <laughs> uses his own DNA, but I don't know if you're commenting on yourself as well. Well, I, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, and anybody that grows up you know, biracial, you know, uh, also, you know, these are questions that you think about, you know, uh, in terms of genetics and destiny, you know, uh, all your life. Uh, but um, what, with the suspect inversions, or sorry, with the first one, the relative velocity inscription device, um, the, the curious thing about that is my own DNA, but it's also my family. You know, so it's um, it was kind of a watershed, interesting piece to do. Is I first started working with DNA, and then I invite my whole family over to um, give blood so that this mm-hmm. <laughs> this artwork could take place. But uh, yeah, there's a tradition in the arts is using the 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 sort of self as a kind of um, the self as subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this is this is the same way. It also kind of. I think it also kind of stands in opposition to this idea of total objectivity, mm-hmm. right? Because the idea is that the the researcher is supposed to be disinterested and outside the outside the frame, in a sense. And mm-hmm. in this case, yeah, I'm always I seem to always be getting stuck within the frame. Another way you could take this is uh, you manipulate your image to to match that of OJ's. In a sense, you. <clears throat> become OJ. You could, you could manipulate your image to become anyone, and so connectedness is that another. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, with that, I mean, the, I guess the the haunting part. Even when I started doing it, was thinking that I'm 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 making my DNA look like OJ's, but I'm also making myself look like the victims. You know, I'm also um, Nicole Brown and Robert Goldman. I'm also every kind of bit of um, DNA that was found uh, on the on the crime scene. Again, when you get this close to something, you sort of, mm-hmm. you know, um, it becomes, again, it's, it's, it's not like just a sort of pop culture aberration. It's, it, it, there's something more more important about it. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking as we went along, the, the Innocence Project was, you know, got a real kickstart from the O.J. Simpson trial. That This was where defense lawyers in this case, I guess, had enough science that they could dispute the DNA evidence. Uh, and they talked about contamination and, you know, all that stuff that's now brought into, I guess, probably every trial that has uh, DNA. Um, but you can cut; it cuts both ways, doesn't Listen, it? I mean, you, you can you can get a suspect off. You can, but you could also get uh, uh, get a suspect out of jail. 
or or convict out of jail using this evidence? You really are asking exactly the right questions of this. I'm really um, I'm really enjoying this. Um, yeah. So. Uh, uh, Barry Sheck and Pierre Neufeld, the, the, the co-founders of, of the Innocence Project, I mean, this is really their, there's, there's an amazing moment for that project. For the people who don't know it, this is the, this is the independent project to um, retest the DNA of um, a lot of death row inmates who there's concern that they were only convicted. And when the DNA evidence is still around, it can be tested now in ways that it couldn't be tested you know, 25 years ago. Um, uh What's curious about this is is that uh, this is basically one of the first cases that they actually win. It, it, it's really the case that I kind of see as, as leading to the kind of success of their endeavor to to get the wrongly convicted off off death row. So I think this is something that comes up a lot when people come to visit the table when we're doing this work. I mean, this is one of the really fascinating stories that comes out of that O.J. Simpson trial that 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 this group all of a sudden that whole project really takes off. And it wasn't their first project together, but I, I, in my interpretation, it's it's certainly the the one that serves as as a springboard. Although it's interesting because in this case, they they um, they're the ones that that shed a light on just how faulty this whole process of DNA collection was, and get the DNA evidence eventually mm-hmm. thrown out. Whereas their their future work will really be based around the fact that DNA evidence is is meaningful, and if two DNA pictures are not the same, then and they're using the same technique to to image them, then that can't be the same person. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's fascinating. And um, and so in a way, with the O.J. Simpson trial, on the one hand, what, what comes out of it is that while in this specific case, the procedure was seen as completely faulty, DNA as the truth machine uh, holds up, right? DNA is um, as this thing that... Um, was ultimately the gold standard of of evidence was was still somehow preserved even if in this instance uh yeah the procedures were faulty let's take another break when we come back i want to talk about the human genome project and uh, early in the program uh, paul venus uh, quoted uh, president clinton right so we, we stand on the on the on the precipice of a, of a new age right with yeah. with with human uh, genome now having been sequenced uh, but i was reading it on interview with you where you quoted somebody who, who used the word new eugenics mm, yeah. in, in conjunction with the Human Genome Project. I want to talk about that. And also this idea of uh, genetic destiny, determinism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about those two topics when we come back. More with Paul Vanus, who is visiting Utah State University as a part of the Artsy STEM Project at Utah State University. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring The Taming of the Shrew in the Outdoor Shakespearean Theater as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. Leonard Slatkin says there's not much for a conductor to do at this point in the piece. Just imagine, as you hear this one, that the conductor has left the room for about five minutes. Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4. Leonard Slatkin will be our guide, even if he didn't have to guide the Detroit Symphony, on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. DNA science is our topic today. Uh, We have an interesting artist with us. He is visiting USU as part of the Art System Project at USU, which uh, seeks to find interesting intersections between art and the STEM sciences. It's an ongoing project at Utah State University, and it's headed up by USU Assistant Professor of Art Mark Leekhoven and Nancy Huntley, who directs the Ecology Center at USU. Uh, Paul Vanus is with me, and he's a professor of art at University at Buffalo and uh, does interesting work in the emerging media form. He uh, comments on science using that same science as, as the medium. So we've been talking about DNA so uh, projects like the Suspect Inversion Center and the Relative Velocity Inscription Device, he is uh, on stage uh, creating uh, DNA images that gets us into not only art, but science. So, uh, Paul Venus, you're a perfect person to have 
obviously, for the Artsy STEM project, uh, which you've been participating here on the USU campus. Uh, we have another 10 minutes left, and you're welcome to join this conversation at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and you can tweet us as well. Uh, use the hashtag AxisUtah. So I want to get into this, uh, this idea of the Human Genome Project, which is, uh, of course, has enormous ramifications, and I think was rightly hailed when it, when it was when it was done. I wonder if you could talk about this. Uh, someone characterized it, uh, used the word new eugenics in conjunction with the Human Genome Project. Yeah, so a lot of my work, I, I, I'm interested in the science of how things work. I'm interested in how they fit, how they land in uh, in our cultural moment and how we how we perceive them. But I'm also interested in the history and historically how they come about, and I find this fascinating. The Human Genome Project was um, undertaken, I believe, somewhere in the mid '80s, uh, and it was proposed originally by a fellow named Robert uh, Robert Shinsheimer. Uh, uh, he, the original title that was proposed for this project was neo-eugenics. So he was realizing, uh, I think correctly, that there's really only been two phases of of human genetics. We had the beginning phase that really began in the late 1800s with eugenics, and it was characterized by all kinds of, you know, the notion that we were trying to, uh, that we were trying to um, push the human race forward into its best possible humanness. Uh, but unfortunately, that had all negative repercussions, right? Uh, forced sterilizations, uh, all kinds of other problems. But um, curiously enough, he, you know, after World War II, when uh, this is, you know, when eugenics is adamantly thrown out by, uh, by, by the Allies and such, uh, we hadn't seen anything like it in, in genetics. Uh, and then, uh, so it's really only with the Genome Project that, that the study of the human comes back. And Shinsheimer actually, you know, just labels it, I guess, as he saw it, which was neo-eugenics. I think he didn't intend for the negative connotations of the word eugenics, but, but needless to say, that title got changed <laughs> pretty right. quickly. Yeah. But I guess uh, uh, maybe what he's commenting on, or you, you could, when you use that word, is the potential. There's potential for yeah, yeah, har- totally. harmful you know, uh, unintended consequences. Yeah, oh, completely. I mean, when I read this in the the late 90s, it was in a, a book called The Code of Codes. It was, it was really written as, as this kind of exciting, at this exciting moment. And uh, But hearing this this historical aspect of, of, of it was really what led me to that first project, right, which which led me to this, to this thought, oh, perhaps, uh, you know, even with all this optimism of the idea that race no longer existed, you know, it, this this idea of looking at human DNA as 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 deterministic, right? As, as strongly deterministic of our identity, uh, this has overtones to previous projects, and eugenics would be the, the sort of closest to those. And you have said I, I used in in my promotional announcement uh, yesterday and today uh, a quote where you thought that uh, new science coming uh, coming up was going to be pushing back against this idea of genetic determinism. This was in 2011. Yeah. Uh, so, and you say on your website, I'm seeking to confront the notion of genetic destiny, the idea that DNA somehow provides a template, not only for much of our physical appearance, but for a specific place within societies in which we live. Yeah. So do you, what is, what is science in the intervening four years done? Well, it, listen, I think from, I think the decade after, after 2000 was a strongly deterministic moment when, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, we had this idea that, you know, e- even, you even see it in terms like, you know, hey, that's not in my DNA. You know, <laughs> all our kind of expressions are based on the idea that DNA was responsible for everything. I think now there's been a couple developments which um, which have changed. In the sciences, for instance, um, most scientists studying uh, disease at this point are not just looking at DNA sequences, but they're looking at this process called this stuff called epigenetic things, which are pre- Particularly the way in which the body and its environment uh, turn on and off genes, right? That that they they literally cover up parts of their DNA so it can't be read. So this, on the one hand, this idea that there's these epigenetic things, there's these things outside DNA, which which are also plenty responsible for who we are uh, and our susceptibility to certain things. Uh, but but on the other hand, the even I think greater player in the last 
five years or so, has been this understanding of our microbiome, right? The microbiome is fascinating. It's, it's, it's all the bacteria that live in, on, in and on the, the human body. There's actually, we actually, our human bodies actually have more bacterial cells than they have human cells, right? Uh, and that bacteria literally differs between us to a de- greater degree than our own DNA does, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about the way this affects our gut, you know, the kind of things we can digest, the way we, the way we smell, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, our susceptibility uh, to, to various, various illnesses, then the, the impact of those bacteria on who we are are enormous. Mm. So again, I, I think this current moment, it's, there, there's a lot more playing. I, I find this more interesting than this strongly deterministic moment that we, mm. we lived through. Uh, this is fascinating. It gets into self-image as well, right? Who 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 we think we are? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It it further confounds any simplistic idea of human of human identity, uh, either collectively or individually. We all of a sudden have this this other major player, which is which is non-human, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we 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 may not be who we thought we were. <laughs> yes. I want, we just have a couple minutes left. I wonder if we, you quickly describe the latent figure protocol. This is a fascinating project. Yeah. Oh, thank you. This is this is a piece. It's, it's it's similar to this to this other work. I I use a very simple microorganism called a plasmid, a non-living organism. I image its DNA, and I've figured out this way. I, I wrote a computer software program that helps me do it. I figured out this way that I can take this take any organism's DNA and turn it into nearly whatever picture I want. Uh, so to basically process it in my laboratory, my studio, in a way that uh, when I put it into a gelatin, it will move to form a predetermined image. And again, this is in a way my ultimate piece, ultimate to my manifesto, that the that DNA is a plastic medium. Mm. I, I stand in front of audiences doing the work, uh, and then before their very eyes, these um, the, the same DNA uh, in two different gels makes two completely different images, and both those images are somewhat representational. Right. So they're like things like copyright symbols and yeah. stuff. And and you're in a way in part commenting on copyright. You can you know, can Yeah, can so the DNA so, itself be copyrighted. Yeah, so the idea is that, you know, the DNA image is built. It's 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 constructed you know, we 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 build buildings, we build arguments, and DNA images are, are somewhat like this. They're 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 built through these uh, complicated sets of uh laboratory processes. Uh <laughs> lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, they're built through this, these these complicated uh, uh, chains of processes. So what I want to do in those pictures is to make clear that um, these aren't like I'm not trying to show the essence of something. I'm not showing these abstract bar barcode like images. Which pretend to show the essence, like a finger, like a fingerprint or something. But rather, I'm I'm showing that um, these are. These are built images. These have a relationship to culture and to society. And uh, by making them look like things that are familiar, it kind of, I guess it kind of undermines the idea that there is some essence hmm. that they're, that they're um, showing us. We will uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Very interesting discussion with Paul Van Oos. He is uh, visiting Utah State University as part of the Artsy STEM project. It's an ongoing project. You can find more about that by searching Artsy STEM and USU. And uh, more on uh, Paul Van Oos can be found at his website, which is paulvanoos.com. Uh, he is in Logan for those events with uh, Artsy STEM and uh, teaches at uh, University of Buffalo. Paul Venus, thanks for coming in. I really thank you for having me, and, and thanks for really, uh, really interesting questions. Pre- appreciate appreciate the discussion. We hope you join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about a group of Russian pioneers who sought a place to build their religious colony far from cities and government interference. Where else would they come but Utah? First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of Utah Humanities. 
Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Invest dimes and reap dollars in Park Valley, Utah. That was the promise of the Pacific Land and Water Company in its 1911 brochure promoting land for sale northwest of the Great Salt Lake. The Salt Lake Company was one of many developers that purchased large tracts of land previously granted to the railroad and then marketed parcels to buyers from out of state. The brochure featured images of orchards, lush fields of grain, and plump cattle and sheep. The pitch was enough to persuade a group of 20 Russian families to purchase several thousand acres in Park Valley and move there in 1914 to create a self-sustaining farming community where they could freely worship. These families were Molokans, religious dissidents recently exiled from Russia who had settled in Los Angeles. But California, where civil law reigned, was not the utopia they had imagined. In fact, the Box Elder News reported, it is to get away from American customs that the Russians are coming to Utah. They object to the check put on them in California. They object strenuously to their young people adopting American customs. And it is their intention to go to a partly isolated locality where they will be free to follow customs such as prevail in the land of their birth. The Molokans traveled to Kelton, Utah by train and from there by wagon to Dove Creek where they set about building houses, digging wells, and clearing land for farming. Of course, the dry sagebrush flats of Box Elder County were nothing like the lavish abundance advertised by the Pacific Land and Water Company. Fresh spring green turned quickly to hot summer brown. Despite being experienced farmers, their efforts were unsuccessful. The last family abandoned Park Valley by 1917, and by 1920 all had returned to Los Angeles. The Molokans left behind their village and a tiny cemetery with graves marked in Russian, along with their dreams of utopia. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. On the next Humankind. I thought that was a very select class of people that somehow you must be knighted a philanthropist or something, that you certainly had to grow up in it, or you lived in a certain zip code. But the vast majority of Americans donate to charity, and a movement called Boulder Giving asks us to give more. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. Coming up next is a zesty garden with your host, Brian Earle. Time now is 10 o'clock.